The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Our guest on this episode has had a very rocky young life, and she writes about it in an extremely honest and gripping manner in her new book. Joining us is Emmy Neetfeld, who is here to tell us more about her journey through family dysfunction, foster care, psych wards, and homelessness. And after all of that, she ended up at Harvard, Google, and Facebook. It's an amazing story, and Emmy's book is called Acceptance, a memoir. It's received a rave review from the New York Times Book Review, in addition to being named a best book of 2022 by Amazon. Emmy, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This book was a long time in the making. It started years ago before publication. What's behind the title of the book, Acceptance? The title started out almost ironically, where when I was a teenager and I was in mental health treatment, it really focused on telling kids, like, you have to accept your situation. And for me at that point in my life, I really, really hated that advice. And I was like, I am going to get out of here and make a better life for myself. And so it started with kind of that ironic meaning. Um, But over time, it did change where I started to think more and more about okay, how do I come to terms with the stuff that happened in my life and move forward without it holding me back? As a teenager, you went into a psych ward and actually liked it. And I'm wondering if you could take a step back and tell us what your upbringing was like that made you actually like being in a psych ward. I think you have to be the first person I've ever heard to say that. (laughs) I feel like I met other kids who liked it too. Um, It all kind of depends on where you're coming from, what your point of reference is. So for me, um, my parents divorced when I was 11 years old and I moved in with my mom who struggled with compulsive shopping and hoarding. And a lot of people think this just means a lot of stuff, but we, after a while, we could not get into our shower. We didn't have hot water for months at a time because... Um, We literally couldn't even figure out what the problem was. We had mice everywhere. And so, you know, my mom brought me to therapy, seeing that I was struggling, um, but could not identify that it was a problem with our living situation. And when I finally wound up in the psych ward, I was like, wow, this place is amazing. (laughs) There's like hot water all the time, hot meals, clean air. I'm not coughing. I can sleep. It was wonderful. Well, tell us more about not only the psych ward, but what your life was like with your mom and dad growing up and the and the dysfunction that was there. I grew up evangelical Christian. My family kind of rotated through different branches of Christianity, but um, by the time that I was nine, we were very like strict, um, you know, patriarchal Christians. 
And um, my parents, they both had their own things going on. Um, and there were just a lot of conflicts at home. Um, and when I was nine, one of my parents, my dad came out as trans. And I was honestly so relieved because I really hoped that that was going to be like the beginning of our new life as a family with everybody understanding each other better. Um, but it was 2001 in Minnesota and really nobody had awareness of what does it mean to be trans. Our church was, you know, very judgmental without, without even, you know, looking at the context or what is going on for this person. And so um, that parent who I call Michelle ended up um, losing custody and moving away across the country. Um, and I never saw her again. Oh my gosh. I, I I can't even imagine. So even to this day, you don't have any relationship with your other parent then? We Facebook messaged a little bit as I think was like a rite of passage for like estranged parents and children in the mid 2000s. Um, yeah, but it was really, it was really hard. Um, I missed Michelle so much while like while I was growing up. Um, and when I was a little bit older, I had to realize, you know, oh, she had, she had stuff going on like mental health wise that meant that in addition to these like social barriers that were happening, like she just could not have been there for me as a parent. And, and I did start to, you know, today I feel more grateful about like, you know, it's hard to lose a parent in that way. And also in some ways it, it was a kindness for me. Um, that I didn't have both of my parents like fighting in this really horrible way for my entire adolescence. Is there any part of you now that feels like you want to have a relationship with Michelle, or do you think that you would be okay if things kind of remained as they are, or maybe it would just complicate things if you yeah. did start that? I actually tried, especially when I was, I got married in 2018 and I think when people get married, they think like, okay, this is the opportunity for like our family to have a miraculous like reunion and everything is going to be perfect. Um, but in the same way that I felt abandoned by Michelle, like she felt really abandoned by me, even though at the time I was a child, I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, and I had no way to contact her. And so when I, when I learned that she kind of held me responsible in that way for, for us not being in contact, it was kind of a wake up call to realize like, we are not on the same page, right? And this is not really like a healthy parent-child relationship in the making. I know that you attempted suicide at the age of 13. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what prompted that and what happened after that? When I was 13, well, I I think to talk about the suicide attempt, it's worth stepping back a little bit. I mentioned that my mom brought me to therapy, and that happened shortly after my parents divorced. I think it was with all the best intentions. There had been this acrimonious divorce. One of my parents had moved away. And like, of course, any child would struggle. And I think 
you know, she had the ability, we had great insurance. So she took me to the doctor. But what she said was, you know, I think Emmy has ADHD. So my mom had attention deficit disorder. She believed that my brother had attention deficit disorder and she really pursued getting medication. So even though I didn't have any problems at school, I didn't have any problems focusing, um, the main kind of evidence was that I was like disorganized, chronically late. Um, and this is for a sixth grader, right? Which sixth grader isn't disorganized and chronically late? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I started taking Concerta when I was in seventh grade, which is like the longer acting form of Ritalin. And I freaked out. I had what I now recognize as like a panic attack. I was given like um, something similar to Xanax. And then I took Adderall and my mom actually gave me her leftover Adderall as like an experiment. Um, and then the doctor gave was like, I'll write you, I'll write her her own prescription. And then, and it just kind of spiraled out of control from there because the doctor saw like, oh, ADD medication doesn't work that must mean she's depressed. And so by the time I was 14, I had taken a dozen different psychiatric drugs and I was on antipsychotics. We thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners and want to tell you more about why you may want to check out our sponsor, Lightstream, the nation's premier online consumer lender. You know, we all start the new year ready to make big changes, but it can be tough to keep the momentum going. If your resolution is to reduce your credit card debt, one way to get ahead is by consolidating that debt and paying a low fixed rate loan instead. And Lightstream makes the process simple. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and there are absolutely no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. A credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream can help you pay off your credit cards and lock in a low fixed interest rate. Rates start at 7.99% APR with auto pay and excellent credit. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for our listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash NTM. That's L-I-G-H-T. S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash N-T-M. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 7.99% to 23.99% APR and include 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash NTM for more information. Again, that's lightstream.com slash NTM. How did they decide to put you on antipsychotics? Because that seems like a big jump. And what did they make you feel like? It was it was honestly more of a slippery slope than a big jump in my in my experience where it started with ADD medication, it went to antidepressants, and then I started having really bad migraines. And so um, nobody was really asking like, hey, is this a, is this because of where you live? 
Like, is this because there's mice everywhere and lots of allergens? Instead, I went to the neurologist and I received Depakote, which is an anticonvulsant that's often used for epilepsy. Um, and when Depakote didn't work, we tried another like newer medication that also worked for epilepsy, um, but kind of doubled as a mood stabilizer. And what happened, excuse me, um, <clears throat> what happened for me was that I once psychiatrists saw on my record that I had been taking these drugs that are used as mood stabilizers, they were like, oh, let's just, let's try some more. And there was a little bit of evidence at the time that um, antipsychotics like Abilify like might be able to help with depression. And all these studies were, were in adults, but they were like, hey, let's, let's try that. And by the time that I was in the psych ward for the, you know, for the fourth time, almost all of my peers were taking one of these medications in part because they just calmed children down. So it felt like being really sluggish, lethargic, um, brain fog. One of the medications that I took, it, it made it so that I couldn't recall words. So it was like the word would be at the tip of my tongue and I just wouldn't be able to find it there. And I, I was afraid it would be like that for the rest of my life. Wow. At what point did you enter the foster system? So after a couple hospitalizations um, and all these medications, um, I, I attempted suicide. I had, you know, just gone off of this, this antidepressant and I was having what in hindsight, I think are pretty bad withdrawal symptoms, which at the time, you know, 2006, people didn't realize that you could get antidepressant withdrawal or nobody had ever told me. So I tried to end my life. And then at the hospital that time, the psychiatrist was like, I think that your house is a problem. Like, I think your family is, is what's making you sick, like not you. So at that point I was given a County social worker and she actually never came to my inside of my apartment where I lived with my mom. She, you know, she was not involved actually with child protective services. She was, she specialized in teen girls who were like so sick that they were their own problems. Um, but, but she was still like that, that entryway potentially into the system. And so I was hospitalized again. And after that, she was like, okay, you should go to foster care. That did not work out. A few days later, she was like, hey, Emmy can't go. Like, it's not going to happen. And maybe it was because there were no homes to take me. I think that that's the most likely situation. So I spent nine months locked up in a residential treatment center where it was like, like if you've heard about the te troubled teen industry, um, where it's like a punitive, like, let's get these kids in line approach. I was there for nine months. Um, and in the meantime, my mom and her apartment, like they only got worse. And so at the end of that, my social worker was like, again, okay, you should go to foster care. Here's a foster home. And so that's what happened. 
And in another crazy twist, you ended up homeless. And rather than getting down, you actually found all of this, this drive and decided to write college essays. Tell us how you got to, to be homeless and how you found that drive, how you were able to kind of escape into your ambitions. I feel very, very lucky because for all of, all of the issues that my parents were dealing with and the flaws that they had as parents, they, they both really believed in me and helped me believe in myself. Um, my mom in particular, she had dreamed when she was a child about attending Stanford University. And so when I was a kid, I was always rolling my eyes because she would go on and on about how different her life would have been if she had only gotten into Stanford. Like if it was snowing really hard in Minnesota and we had to scrape the ice off the windshield of the car, she'd be like, if I had gone to Stanford, I'd be in California right now with the palm trees. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, mom, be quiet. But like, in, but it really did give me this idea of like, okay, there's this place out there called like, you know, college. And if I can just go there, every single part of my life is going to be radically different. And so when I was locked up in this treatment center, my life just felt totally hopeless. And I had all this free time on my hands. And so it was like the one thing that I could do for myself was to think about higher education. Yeah. I started studying for the, for standardized tests um, when I was in this facility and receiving like basically no real schooling. I was like teaching myself math from like the Kaplan ACT prep guide. Um, and then a few years later after foster care, I got a scholarship to boarding school, which was the most like wonderful lucky break. Um, but the dorms closed and, you know, I stayed with all these different friends and then I ran out of people to stay with. I slept in my car for a little while. I went to a shelter. Um, and the whole time, my biggest worry was I was like, how am I going to write good college applications if I can't think straight because I don't have a steady place to sleep? So how were you able to do that? How were you able to go from being homeless and, and living in your old car to getting into Harvard? Because that's not the typical path. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, as I've gotten older, I've learned about how, how rare it is for former foster youth to go to college at all, let alone Ivy League universities. My social worker in 30 years had never had a client go to college before me. And I, I was extremely lucky to have help by so many different people, all of whom really did not need to help me. Um, like I had a mentor who my social worker connected me with and she was like this one stable adult presence in my life. And she couldn't like give me a place to stay all the time. You know, she did what she could, but she was there for me. And I also got um, pro bono college counseling help from this like fancy, like as seen on TV, like counselor um, named Dr. Catherine Cohen. And um, 
And she was the person who, when I was like sleeping in my car, she was like, you have to go to a shelter. Like, it doesn't matter how much you don't want to, to let people see you that you're struggling. Like, you have to ask for help and you have to make a paper trail so that when you apply to college, you can show them, hey, this is what happened to me, because otherwise they're not going to believe you. Yet what's so crazy to me is that you found out that resilience narratives like yours can actually be detrimental to you moving forward. And I I know that you wrote about your mental illness when you tried to get into Yale and you got rejected. And then when you tried to paint a prettier picture for Harvard, you got in. So what did that really tell you about how society views mental health and what did you try to do and what are you continuing to try to do um, to, to change that? In acceptance, I write a lot about this expectation that I faced to be resilient and strong. And especially when I was at my lowest moments, I felt like there was this expectation that I had to be the toughest. And so in these college applications, as you mentioned, like I I was really honest when I applied to Yale and I mentioned like, hey, I have PTSD, like this stuff really affected me. And the feedback that I got back was that the schools wanted an overcomer. They wanted to see my success story, even though I had been writing those essays when I was literally sleeping in the back of my rusty Toyota Corolla. And so it was this really kind of unrealistic fantasy that they wanted me to to tell. And and I did. But what I didn't expect is that that story was was never going to end. Like I told it in my college applications and then I arrived at Harvard and it was like I had to be this perfect person who had been made stronger by all these things that I had been through. And I think that can be so damaging because no child should go through those things. And I I totally understand the appeal of looking at these human interest stories of individuals overcoming incredible odds because they give us hope and they help us feel better about the world that we live in. But I have seen again and again how relying too much on those stories can really prevent people from thinking about like, what is the underlying problem here and how can we fix it? We thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. You know, we always try to tell you about things that will help improve your life. And our sponsor, ZocDoc, is one of those things. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. They treat almost every condition under the sun. You know, it's frustrating to go to a doctor's appointment expecting to be able to fully explain your symptoms, condition, and worries only to find that the doctor wants to hurry you out of their office. Instead of listening to you intently, the doctor is checking the clock. But on ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. I've used ZocDoc several times to find doctors, and I have never been disappointed. I love how ZocDoc lets you check a doctor's availability and book an appointment as soon as the same day if there's an opening. 
Thousands of doctors and medical professionals on ZocDoc are there to help you. ZocDoc helps you find the ones that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com NTM and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z. D-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash N-T-M. ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M. If you have a symptom that you'd really like to get checked out, don't put it off anymore. Just go to ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M and download the ZocDoc app for free. I know that you, you write in the book, that several times you mentioned how people in the system or doctors said things to you like the choice is yours in terms of changing your situation. How did that sit with you as a teenager? And how do you feel about that kind of advice as an adult? I remember this most vividly when I was 14 and I was about to go to the hospital Um it was like the fourth time and it was fifth time. And it was the time that was really going to change my life because after that I went to residential treatment, I went to foster care. Um, and I, at the time I was dealing with a severe eating disorder and my doctor told me like, you can choose to get well or you can choose to be sick. And at the time I felt like, it's just, it's not that easy. You know, we we have choices over our behavior. And also, mental illness is a real thing. And it was something that I was really struggling with. So that felt like putting, really putting the blame on me for not only my response to the situation, but almost for the, for the situation itself. Um, and... As an adult, my my view is a little bit more complicated where I, I see how she was trying to make me feel like empowered, like, okay, I can change, maybe I can change the situation. Um, but also I would have put it differently, right? And if I could go back and talk to my teenage self, I would, I would tell her, like, look, there's a million things you don't have control over, and there's a few things that you do. And like being a teen in this situation is you lack so much power, but one day you're going to be an adult and you'll be able to call the shots on your own life. Mm, I love that. I love that. I want to talk about your time at Google and how that turned from a dream job to a total nightmare for you. Yeah. When I was at Harvard, I was very focused on my future career. And I loved like writing and art, but I also knew, okay, I need a job. And I need a job that not only has health insurance, but dental insurance. And it seemed like my choices were really like finance, consulting, or engineering. And I didn't have good enough social skills for finance or consulting. So I was like, okay, (laughs) engineering it is. 
Um, but I found one I really loved. Um, I loved the other people. I learned to enjoy coding. And when I got a job at Google, it was like this dream come true. Because like a lot of people who come from unstable families, I was always looking for the place that was going to feel like my home, where I belonged. And I really, really felt that at Google. Everything from the free food to my colleagues who I was really close to, um, to feeling like my work really had a purpose. Um, but after, when I was about 25, I had to report a mentor's harassment and the HR investigation that followed really turned my life inside out. And it, it showed me that a company is never really a family. As much as I loved Google, Google did not love me back. And it, it brought up so many different things from my past. And that was really the point at which I, I had to stop running. Like I had taken all my adolescence, like all the bad things that happened, like put it in a box, close the box, duct taped the box shut. And suddenly that box was open. And so it wasn't just reckoning with this, this one job gone bad. I had to reckon with my whole, whole history. And I'm wondering what you hope readers take away from your story. I, I have a couple different audiences in mind and my hope for each one is a little bit different. I really hope that young people read this book and that they feel seen and validated about some of the challenges of being a teenager and an adolescent. Like whether they're in a tumultuous family or in the mental health system, or if they're just dealing with with more of the the normal but excruciating pains of growing up. Um, I hope that like the kids ultimately take away a hopeful message from the book and feel excited about like becoming an adult. Um, and I also hope that um, parents and doctors and therapists read the book and get a better sense of what is happening when teenagers are acting out, when they're doing things that don't necessarily make sense. Like that if someone has a, a adolescent come into their office and say, hey, I have this dream that sounds totally crazy. I hope that they might better know how to deal with it. And instead of like pointing out like, hey, is that really realistic? Figure out how do we leverage that energy and that desire for change into like a healthy life, um, better habits, like, and a good future. Because I think that's really possible and that's crucial, especially when working with youth in crisis. Emmy, at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about overcoming difficult times, a difficult childhood or having grit or, or accepting yourself that you wish you'd known before and you'd like to share with our audience because hopefully it will allow them to maybe not have to take so much time overcoming it themselves? <laughs> I love that question. And for me, no, nobody told me that the bad things that happened in my past, they were going to affect me. And that was just inevitable. It's true for everyone. 
and that it doesn't make me weaker or make anybody weaker to be hurt and broken and sad by your past. And I wish that somebody had told me that that was totally okay. And that was an important part of being human and that nobody has to completely get over anything in order to have a great future. And Emmy, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? Yes. Um, I am at emmyneatfeld.com. That's my website. And I have links to Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, they're all the same handle, Emmy Neatfeld. And I also have a newsletter, which I send out about once a month. And it's really fun with um, links to articles and recommendations and stuff. And that's my favorite way of staying in touch. And Neatfeld is spelled N-I-E-T-F-E-L-D. You got it. A plus. (laughs) (laughs) I passed the spelling test. Well, I mean, it has been a joy to talk with you. And, you know, your story is just it's inspiring, I think, to, to just about anybody who says to themselves, hey, I haven't had that kind of toughness in my life. So maybe I need to, you know, turn things around and maybe I can turn things around. Thank you. I hope I hope it I hope it does that. Again, our thanks to Emmy Neatfeld, whose book is called Acceptance, a memoir. And again, her website is EmmyNeatfeld.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 